It's the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service for Friday, May 22, 2020. On this date in history, in 1980, the arcade game Pac-Man was released. Also on this date in 1906, the Wright Brothers flying machine was patented. And on this date in 1859, Arthur Conan Doyle was born. He, of course, is a Scottish physician and the author of the Sherlock Holmes novels. On today's episode, Stephen Tomlinson is back with TV and movie recommendations. Make sure you have a pen and paper handy because there's a lot of very good suggestions from regular TV to podcasts to streaming services. Stephen talks about the new HBO documentary on Natalie Wood, the new Netflix series Steel Magnolias, and the Amazon Prime series The Great, which is very loosely based on the life of Catherine the Great. The Great opens on the young Catherine excitedly leaving her native Austria for the wild Russian Empire. And boy, do I mean wild. However, her enthusiasm soon turns into bitterness as she realizes that Peter III, played as a doltish man-child by the actor Nicholas Holt, is not a kind husband, nor is he a good ruler. Librarian Maria Luisa Morales is here uh, with the four book reviews, including a book called The Power of Bad, How the Negativity Effect Rules Us and How We Can Rule It. The book provides coping strategies for the negativity bias that pervades our daily lives and offers tips so that we can be happy, productive, and well-adjusted. We have another song uh, from Corona Serenades. This is from Rebecca Louise Dale. She's going to be singing Waltz of My Heart. But to start today's episode, music librarian Farah Mohammed is uh, celebrating International Museum Day by connecting art, like the Mona Lisa, to music. Here's Farah. Hello, and welcome to another musical moment. My name is Farah Mohammed, and today we celebrate International Museum Day with some great music. Little did I know, this past Monday was International Museum Day. Created in 1977, an international body of museums was formed. Each year, a day is chosen to promote the role of museums around the world by organizing enjoyable and free activities around a chosen theme. International Museum Day has become steadily more popular since its creation. To date, over 30,000 museums in 129 countries have come to acknowledge the importance of this day. So, to honor all the wonderful museums I have been to over the years, today's playlist will hopefully evoke the feelings we feel when looking at great pieces of art. My first selection is quite self-explanatory. The basis for this song is about the painting of Lisa Giardini, painted by the Italian Renaissance master Leonardo da Vinci. Painted in 1503, this portrait hangs in the Louvre today, and it is one of the most valuable paintings in the world, worth about $600 million. I'm talking, of course, about the Mona Lisa. Here's the wonderful Nat King Cole singing Mona Lisa, a popular song written by Ray Evans and Jay Livingston 
in 1950. Tempt a lover, Mona Lisa. Or is this your way to hide a broken heart? Many dreams have been brought to your doorstep. They just lie there and they die there. Are you warm? Are you? Lovely work of art, Mona Lisa, Mona Lisa. A night scene is a very popular theme for an artist, and in particular, the moon is a favorite subject to paint as it helps the artist to provide light for that night scene. By far the most common representation of the moon is when it is full, whether it be white, yellow, or blue. Which brings to mind that classic ballad written by Richard Rogers and Lorenz Hart in 1934, and beautifully sung by Billie Holiday, called Blue Moon. Blue 
saw me standing alone without a dream in my heart, without a love of my own. Blue moon, you knew just what I was there for. You heard me saying a prayer for someone I really could care for. Suddenly appeared before me The only one my arms will ever hold I heard somebody whisper Please adore me And when I looked the moon had turned to gold Blue moon Now I'm no longer alone Without a dream in my heart Without a love of my own goes without saying, if I mention the moon, then I must most definitely have to mention the sun. Oftentimes, among my museum meanderings, I would come across paintings of Renoir's famous outdoor cafe scenes depicting the hustle and bustle of Parisian life. People in fashionable, colorful clothes, seated with their friends around small tables, enjoying life in the fresh air. What comes to mind for me is the next number. Here is Peggy Lee singing the 1930 classic On the Sunny Side of the Street, a song composed by Jimmy McHugh with lyrics by Dorothy Fields and features clarinetist 
Benny Goodman. What a treat. Caravaggio's sumptuous depictions of grapes, plums, peaches, nuts, and berries, to those glorious apples by Cezanne, fruit has always been a favorite subject to paint by all painters from every major period in the history of art. Fruit, like human life, portrays the transient nature related to our existence. Fresh fruit represents fertility, vitality, youth, and abundance. When the fruit is in a state of overripeness and decay, it characterizes the inevitable and undeniable mortality of our presence in the world. 
popular phrases using fruit like she's the apple of my eye and peachy keen also signify the positive that life is good. Here is Doris Day singing Life is Just a Bowl of Cherries, a popular song composed in 1931 by Ray Henderson and lyrics by Lou Brown. People are queer, they're always crowing, scrambling and rushing about. Why don't they stop someday? Talk to themselves this way. Why are we here? Where are we going? It's time that we found out We're not here to stay We're on a short holiday Is just a bowl of cherries Don't make it serious It's too mysterious You work You save You worry so But you can't take your dough When you go Go, go so keep repeating, it's the berries, the strongest oak must fall, the sweet things in life to you were just loaned, how can you? Stained glass has always been a favorite art form of mine. When the sun shines through the deep reds and purples, or even the pastel colors of pinks and light greens, the effects can be breathtaking. From the stained glass rose windows of medieval and Renaissance cathedrals, to those iconic lampshades in the Art Nouveau style created by Louis Comfort Tiffany, stained glass works of art are beautiful and timeless. Which brings me to my last selection. 
Here's a swinging upbeat number composed in 1962, sung by Frank Sinatra, featuring Count Basie on piano. Life is always better when looking at the world through rose-colored glasses. Looking at the world through rose-colored glasses, everything is rosy now. Looking at the world and everything that passes seems a rosy hue somehow. Why do I feel so spry? Don't blink your eye. Needn't guess, I'll confess certain someone just said yes. In a bungalow, all covered with roses, I will settle down, I vow. That's why I'm looking at the world. Rose-colored glasses, everything is rosy now. the world through rose-colored glasses everything is rosy now looking at the world and everything that passes seems of rosy you somehow why do i feel so spry don't wink your eye needn't guess i'll confess certain someone just said yes in a bungalow all covered with roses i will settle down i vow that's why I'm looking at the world through rose-colored glasses. Everything is rosy now. Yes, everything is rosy now. I hope that you've enjoyed this musical excursion through the art gallery today. It cannot be stressed enough how important both art and music are to the well-being of the mind and soul. Museums, art galleries, and concerts create meaningful experiences for everyone. And although we are not able to experience these wonders in person just yet, we can still explore the many virtual tours and hear the myriad of concerts offered to us over the internet throughout these most unusual times. So, here's to pleasant viewings and happy listenings. Bye for now. Hello and welcome. You are listening to Lockdown Viewing with Code St. Luke librarian Stephen Tomlinson. And for the next 20 minutes or more, I'm going to talk about movies, television, and internet streaming content as well as provide some recommendations for what to watch and where to watch it this coming week. But first, the Oscars 2021, which are likely to be postponed. 
The rapid shutdown of film production and cinemas has thrown the Academy Awards schedule into chaos, with many films being delayed or released only online. According to a report this week from the industry standard Variety, the 2021 Oscar ceremony is likely to be delayed due to the coronavirus pandemic. Citing unnamed sources, Variety said the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences is considering the situation and the Oscars currently due to take place on the 28th of February, 2021, will probably be postponed. However, no formal discussions are thought to have yet taken place. In April, the Academy made a very important change to Oscar eligibility. It said it was temporary in allowing films that missed out on a cinema release to be considered for awards. Previously, films had to be screened in cinemas for at least a week before the last day of the calendar year in order to be eligible for an Oscar. Academy President David Rubin told Variety, it's impossible to know what the landscape will be. We know we want to celebrate film, but we do not know exactly what form that will take. Now, despite declining viewer figures and largely unsuccessful attempts to reformat the show in order to arrest that slide in viewership, the Academy still earns large, if decreasing, sums from its annual Oscars telecast. But in my opinion, the landscape has changed forever. And what constitutes a legitimate, recognizable movie as something that is necessarily played in a movie theater is not a model we're going to go back to anytime soon. And the Academy will simply have to address that. But stay tuned. We'll see. On another front, and with another bastion of the movies, the Cannes Film Festival, it has halted any plans for a physical edition for 2020. Also due to the pandemic, but is aiming, very hopefully it must be said, to sponsor screenings later this year at other festivals and cinemas of the films that it would have selected for its festival. Of course, the most important in the world. In an interview with Screen Magazine, Cannes Artistic Director Terry Fremont said he could never have imagined something like the cancellation of the festival, which was originally due to start last week, and that he was, quote-unquote, overcome with a great sense of melancholy and nostalgia. He added, Under the circumstances, a physical edition of Can 2020 is hard to envisage, so we'll have to do something different. Everyone understands that it is impossible this year. End of quote. Can has also appeared to resist calls to go down the digital route and construct a virtual festival online. Now, that idea of film festivals online has been gathering momentum for some time now. Montreal itself has always been a great place for film festivals, of course, but the question isn't whether online film festivals are a good idea. They're literally all we have right now, and we'll have to make the best of that. But perhaps the most notable online film festival immediately upcoming is the 10-day We Are One Global Film Festival, from May 29th, a week from today, to June 7th, 
featuring films, shorts, documentaries, music, comedy, and conversations, curated from film festivals around the world, including TIFF, the Toronto International Film Festival, Cannes itself, and Sundance. Produced by Tribeca Enterprises in New York as a benefit for the World Health Organization's COVID-19 Solidarity Response Fund, it'll launch on YouTube next Friday with programming to be announced. If interested, just go to YouTube and search on the words We Are One Film Festival. Movies will be free. It's unlikely, however, that any major new movies will be launched here as they would be at a traditional festival. Rather, it most likely will be important movies from past major festivals. That's the We Are One Global Film Festival, streaming movies for free on YouTube from May 29th to June 7th. You know, it's funny how the Hollywood actress Natalie Wood remains in the news, even if peripherally, almost 40 years after her death. But Natalie Wood, What Remains Behind, is a major new HBO documentary that looks at the actress's remarkable life and career. But early on in this documentary, Wood's eldest daughter, Natasha Gregson Wagner, notes rather sadly that her mother's tragic death in 1981 at the age of 43 off the coast of Catalina Island in California has overshadowed her mother's film legacy. Natalie Wood, of course, did indeed have an illustrious career, one that spanned roles from Miracle on 34th Street in 1947 to Rebel Without a Cause in 1955, to West Side Story in 1961, and Bob and Carol, Ted and Alice in 1969. The documentary, released just this week, has something of an authorized by the family feel to it, and features interviews with Wood's two daughters, her friends, including Mia Farrow and Robert Redford, and most significantly, Robert Wagner, who Wood twice married and who was with her the night she died, and who has officially been deemed a person of interest in the ongoing investigation into her death in 2018, which a coroner's report said was, and I quote, the result of a drowning and other undetermined factors, end quote. Although the documentary does proceed through her career using a mixture of archived photos and clips and present-day talking head interviews, it must be said that despite Natasha Gregson Wagner's observation at the beginning of the film, noting that her mother's death has overshadowed her career, a significant portion of Natalie Wood, What Remains Behind, does itself focus on her mother's death, and particularly on disproving the accusation that her stepfather, Robert Wagner, might be responsible for it. Understandably, Gregson Wagner is upset by the accusations that her stepdad, whom she feels was an exceedingly loving husband and father, would ever be capable of such a crime. But according to Wagner, the accusations don't bother him. I don't pay very much attention to it, Natasha, because they're not going to redefine me, he tells Gregson Wagner in the film. You know, I think fans of Natalie Wood classic Hollywood and celebrity culture in general, will no doubt want to see this documentary for themselves. And I will tell you how to do so in a minute or two. But just in case you can't, here are some of my takeaways from Natalie Wood, What Remains Behind. 
She was born Natalia Nikolaevna Zakarenko in San Francisco to Russian-American immigrant parents. And she was, you might say, an archetypal child film star. Indeed, even being named Natalie Wood by a studio executive when she was just five years old. He chose Natalie and he chose Wood in honor of his friend, Sam Wood, the director. So that's how I got named, Natalie Wood said in an audio interview featured in the film. Another point of interest is that Wood wrote an article for Ladies Home Journal in 1966, one that was never published, but which Natasha Gregson Wagner reads a portion of in the movie, and which was titled Public Property, Private Person. In this article, Wood wrote of her troubles in her first marriage to Robert Wagner. And of course, they would much later remarry. But it's all very interesting. Let me quote. After two years of marriage, things began to change. We were aware that we had problems, but we tried to avoid the real conflicts. We maintained a superficially happy relationship and hoped that by pretending nothing was wrong, that the problems would go away. How do you separate reality from illusion when you've been trapped in make-believe all your life? Marriage requires patience and work, as well as a capacity to accept another human being, flaws and all, without cloaking him in a smothering mantle of perfection." End quote. Another takeaway from the documentary is regarding the long-circulated rumor that Natalie Wood and her fellow actor Christopher Walken had had an affair near the end of her life. This is especially interesting now that we know that Wagner and Walken were arguing on the night that Wood died. According to Douglas Trumbull, who directed Walken and Wood in Wood's final film, Brainstorm, this rumor has no basis in fact, though his reasons, as explained on screen, seem to me somewhat dubious. Rather more interesting is the stepson of Robert Wagner from another marriage, Joshua Donan, who lived with both Wood and Wagner after college during this period, and who says of that night that Natalie Wood was anxious about going on the boat with both Wagner and Walken because she felt compromised. She loved the life she had, and she loved the work, and she knew she couldn't do both, not fully. According to Donan, these two men represented both sides of that argument. Walken was, in her mind, a free spirit, an artist, and Wagner was a responsible husband and father. Now let me quote Donan. I had said to her that I thought it was important that she go on the boat, that it would give her an opportunity to work through all of this. Silly me. End quote. In the documentary, Wagner admits that he got violent with Walken the night that Wood died, and then walks through that night for his stepdaughter, Natasha Gregson Wagner, but really for us too as viewers, and in doing so provides a similar account to the one he gave in his 2008 book, Pieces of My Heart. Here's what Wagner says about that night 
in the documentary. I remember I had a few glasses of wine, and I was feeling pretty good. We came back to the boat. I opened up another bottle and had a couple more glasses of wine. I sat there with Chris, and we started talking. And he started to mention to me about your mother, meeting Natalie Wood, how wonderful she was and what a great actress she was and how he enjoyed working with her. Walkins said, you know, I think it's important that she works. And I said, I think it's important you stay out of our lives. I got angry at that. So your mother went down below to our bedroom to get ready to go to bed. And I sat there with Chris. I said, don't tell her what to do and stay out of her life. I picked up the bottle and smashed it on the table. I was really angry about that. But when I look back on it, unjustifiably so. Walken then ducked out and went on the top of the deck. And I followed him out there. I was still saying to him, just stay out of it, Chris. Don't get involved in it. She's got three children. I was also a little high at the time, I might say, but I calmed down. We went back down below and talked for a while more. He then went to his cabin, which was up in the other part of the boat. I had Dennis, Dennis Davern, the boat's captain, sweep up the glass on the floor and clean up the salon a bit. We talked about leaving the next day to go back to the mainland. Then I went below, and when I went below, she wasn't there. I looked around. I looked in the bathroom. She wasn't in the bathroom, and the dinghy was gone. According to Wagner, he then called a shore boat to check for wood at the restaurant where they'd had dinner, and when he didn't find her, he called the shore patrol and the coast guard. But this contradicts the boat captain's account of the night who has claimed that Wagner prevented him from calling for help after Wood went missing, and has alleged in his own 2014 book that Wagner pushed Wood off of the boat. Intriguingly, Lana Wood, Natalie's sister, has also accused Robert Wagner of killing her. But this is dismissed in the film, and both Gregson Wagner and Robert Wagner theorize that Wood who had been drinking and also couldn't swim, was most likely trying to adjust the dinghy when she slipped into the water and died. In an interview with The Guardian, Gregson Wagner and the film's director say they didn't want to rehash accusations because they believe them to be 100% false. We're not operating under the guise of finding out what happened, because we know what happened, the director said. But in doing this, I think, certain details may have been left out, or at the very least, remain hazy, leaving viewers like me with questions by the film's end. That's HBO's new documentary, Natalie Wood, What Remains Behind, which you can view on Crave, a series of cable channels available as an add-on to your basic TV package on both Bell and Videotron, but also as an app that you can download to your mobile device. 
Okay, moving on. I spoke a couple of weeks ago about the many Jewish-themed movies available through the Cote St. Luke Public Library's Hoopla digital streaming service. Many of them by way of the great distributor Menemsha Films, one of the largest distributors of Jewish-themed movies from across the world, and which you can find as the link on Hoopla Digital, and which are free to you as a member of the library. But you may be interested to know that Menemsha Films has started its own streaming service, a specifically Jewish-themed streaming service called Chiflix, or is it pronounced Hyflix? I must confess, I'm not really sure how it's pronounced. But it is spelled C-H-A-I-F-L-I-C-K-S. And while the selection of films is very good, and I do recommend it, once our library acquires the streaming service Canopy, you will, in combination with Hoopla Digital, have access to about 80% of what is on offer from Chiflix. Or is it Hyflix? The new Jewish-themed streaming service from the Nemsha Films. What's new on Netflix? Well, Steel Magnolias. No, not the movie from 1989 with Shirley MacLaine, Sally Field, and Olympia Dukakis, though very similar in tone. This Steel Magnolias is based on the series of novels by Cheryl Woods, which follows the lives and loves of three best friends in South Carolina. I've only seen a few clips, but the leads look to be very well cast, including Joanna Garcia Swisher, Brooke Elliott, and Tony winner Heather Headley as Maddie, Helen, and Dana Sue. Reviewers describe it as a comforting mix of Southern sass and melodrama. There's romance, should any come their way. There's divorce. There's small-town gossip. There's juggling kids with career stuff going on. But really, I think that's it. That's the show. Now, Sweet Magnolias doesn't look like what they call prestige TV, but I don't think it's trying to be either. Some critics are calling it an excellent soap, worth watching if you're looking for some comfort food television right now. And let's face it, who isn't? I've also read that it's an especially fine substitute for gabbing and gossiping with your best friends over drinks. That may not be possible right now. But what is possible is watching the new series, Steel Magnolias, streaming now on Netflix. Meanwhile, over on Amazon Prime, and a little closer to my own taste in series TV, is the equally brand new show, The Great, a slightly decadent and dark, but frequently funny and definitely frisky look at the rise of the 18th century Russian ruler, Catherine the Great, played by Ellie Fanning. The Great opens on the young Catherine excitedly leaving her native Austria for the wild Russian Empire. And boy, do I mean wild. However, her enthusiasm soon turns into bitterness as she realizes that Peter III, played as a doltish man-child by the actor Nicholas Holt, is not a kind husband, nor is he a good ruler. The Great then follows the young Catherine as she begins to discover herself in this strange new place, one she's soon dead set on taking over. Ornate sets, beautiful lighting, and impressive cinematography make The Great very easy on the eye. But with its raucous, satirical energy, this is definitely not a BBC-style heritage drama. Nor is it something for the squeamish. 
but the message at its center is nourishing nevertheless. And in the way of the best series, it reveals to us what TV's been missing all this time, a fantasy about the rise of the Enlightenment, believe it or not. Breezy, quirky, and quite risque, not to mention quite free in its use of historical facts. The great is great fun. And if it reminds you of anything, it may be of the Oscar-winning movie The Favorite. And if so, that is likely not a coincidence, because The Great was created by Tony McNamara, one of the writers behind that Oscar-winning movie. And it has to be said that while The Great may be set in the past, clearly the era that it most resembles is our own, to both comic and poignant effect. That's The Great, a new 10-part miniseries streaming now on Amazon Prime. All right, before winding up, let's take a look at what's on the traditional TV channels. Over on CBC TV this week, on Saturday, May 23rd, at 9 p.m., is Remember, made in 2015, with Christopher Plummer as a widow and survivor who struggles with memory loss, but who, with the help of a fellow survivor, played by Martin Landau, embarks on a cross-country odyssey to find the former Nazi responsible for the deaths of their family members. Directed by Adam Agoyan, the film is especially noteworthy for Plummer's delicate and dignified performance, though the third-act payoff may not be to everyone's taste. Preceding Remember, at 7 p.m., on Saturday, May 23rd, and also on CBC TV, is the family drama Milton's Secret, starring Donald Sutherland as a man who teaches his 11-year-old grandson how to cope with both bickering parents and the neighborhood bully. It's not a film that I have seen, and the critical reviews are at best mixed, but it sounds like a warm and earnest movie that a lot of viewers may need right now. That's Milton's Secret with Donald Sutherland on CBC TV at 7 p.m., on Saturday, May 23rd, followed immediately afterwards by Remember with Christopher Plummer and Martin Landau. And speaking of Canadian icons like Sutherland and Plummer, on Sunday, May 24th on CTV at 8 p.m. is the two-hour musical biographical documentary Once Were Brothers, Robbie Robertson and the Band which is the story behind Bob Dylan's backing group of the mid-1960s that went on to become one of the most influential groups of its era. It is, as the title suggests, mostly centered on band member Robbie Robertson's personal journey, his overcoming adversity, and finding camaraderie alongside the four other men who would become his brothers in music. Once Were Brothers blends rare archival footage, photography, iconic songs and interviews with Robertson's friends and collaborators, including Martin Scorsese, Bruce Springsteen, Eric Clapton, Van Morrison, and more. That's Once We're Brothers, Robbie Robertson and the Band, on CTV at 8 p.m. on Sunday, May 24th. I know I'll be watching and already have it set to record on my PVR. On PBS, Tuesday, May 26th, at 9 p.m. is the brand new, very special documentary program entitled Viral, Anti-Semitism in Four Mutations. 
in which veteran television filmmaker Andrew Goldberg explores the contemporary rise in anti-Semitism, which he views in the context of a disease spreading across Europe and the United States. Goldberg travels through the U.S. and visits France, England, and Hungary to speak firsthand with victims, witnesses, anti-Semites, and interviewees, including Bill Clinton, Tony Blair, Fareed Zakaria, George Will, and Deborah Lipstadt. That's Viral, Anti-Semitism in Four Mutations, on PBS, Tuesday, May 26, at 9 p.m. Now, a fascinating must-listen podcast that I'd like to recommend is one from the staff of Film Comment Magazine and the New York Film Festival about the life and career of the rugged, sardonic Hollywood actor Robert Mitchum, best known for his anti-authoritarian, anti-heroic roles in classic film noir of the 1940s and 1950s. Movies like Out of the Past, but also in such films as The Story of G.I. Joe, The Night of the Hunter, and Cape Fear. The podcast is just under an hour and mostly delves into his unique, even iconic, under-the-surface acting style, in which to think of him accessing emotion or creating a character somehow feels very wrong. And even if Mitchum himself self-deprecatingly claimed about his own acting that he favored the Smirnoff method over Stanislavski, the contributors here provide many illuminating examples of his great creative skill. That's the Film Comment podcast, Robert Mitchum, and you can find it on the internet using those exact words, and then play it directly from the website without any problem. My pick for this week's best bet on Turner Classic Movies is a quartet of film noir classics, including Sam Fuller's Pick Up on South Street, in which a spy and the FBI both hunt a petty thief played by Richard Widmark, who has inadvertently stolen important microfilm documents bearing confidential U.S. government secrets. It's on TCM May 29th at 8 p.m. And with its dazzling cast, including Gene Peters, Thelma Ritter, and Richard Kiley, and director Sam Fuller's signature raw energy and hard-boiled repartee, Pick Up on South Street is a true film noir classic by one of Hollywood's most passionate cinematic craftsmen. That's on TCM, Friday, May 29th at 8 p.m. A day earlier on TCM, starting at 11 p.m., is a double feature of The Woman in the Window, followed by Scarlet Street. Made in 1944 and 1945, both noir films are directed by Fritz Lang and star Edward G. Robinson, Joan Bennett, and Dan Durier, and arguably the most characteristic roles of each actor. And the films are similar, too, in that Robinson is a sympathetic everyman figure, who gets mixed up with shady characters played by both Bennett and Durier. It's wonderful stuff, dark but stylish, especially by the standards of Hollywood in that period. I wish Lang, Robinson, Bennett, and Durier had made more films together, but these two more than make up for that. That's 
The Woman in the Window and Scarlet Street on Turner Classic Movies, Thursday, May 28th at 11 p.m. And finally, among these film noir classics this week on TCM is Too Late for Tears, a great noir title if I've ever heard one, but also one of the very best if too little known films in the entire genre. It stars noir icons Elizabeth Scott in one of the very greatest of femme fatale roles, and Dan Durier, the same actor from those Lang films just mentioned. But to see Scott play a pathological housewife who kills her husband and plots with a private eye, played by Durier, at his lizard-like best, after someone tosses a bag full of money into her car, is nothing less than pure pleasure. That's Too Late for Tears on TCM, Thursday, May 28th at 11.30 a.m. All four films are on Turner Classic Movies, an add-on cable channel from both Bell and Videotron. But you're in luck if you don't have TCM. Both Too Late for Tears and Pick Up on South Street are streaming in high definition for free on YouTube. Anyway, that's all for now. You've been listening to Lockdown Viewing with Cote St. Luke librarian Stephen Tomlinson. I hope you've enjoyed this installment and will join me next Thursday for a talk entitled Wells vs. Hearst, the story behind Citizen Kane. And then on the following day, Friday, for more recommendations of what to watch and where to watch it. Remember, if you have any comments or questions, you can best reach me at stomlinson at CoteStLuke.org or by means of the library's Facebook page or even by calling the library at 514-485-6900 and leaving a message for me. Bye-bye and happy viewing. Talk to you soon. Good afternoon. My name is Maria Luisa Morales, one of your librarians at the Cotsan Loop Public Library. In today's episode of Book Talking, I will briefly cover four interesting and thought-provoking non-fiction books recently published. A new book written by City Journal contributing editor John Tierney and social scientist Roy Baumeister is titled The Power of Bad. The title may sound pessimistic or perhaps negative. However, it is not, as stated in the book subtitle, how the negativity effect rules and how we can rule it. The book provides coping strategies for the negativity bias that pervades our daily lives and offers tips so that we can be happy, productive, and well-adjusted. It tackles important questions such as, why are we devastated by a word of criticism even when it is mixed with lavish praise? Because our brains are wired to focus on the bad. This negativity effect explains things great and small. Why countries blunder into disastrous wars? Why couples divorce? Why people do not do well at job interviews? How schools fail students? All day long, the power of bad governs people's moods drives marketing campaigns and dominates news and politics.
Roy Baumeister stumbled unexpectedly upon this fundamental aspect of human nature. To find out why financial losses matter more to people than financial gains, Baumeister looked for situations in which good events made a bigger impact than bad ones, but his team couldn't find any. Their research showed that bad is relentlessly stronger than good, and their paper has become one of the most cited in the scientific literature. Our brain's negativity bias makes evolutionary sense because it kept our ancestors alert to fatal dangers, but it distorts our perspective in today's media environment. The steady barrage of bad news and crisis mongering makes us feel helpless and leave us needlessly fearful and angry. We ignore our many blessings, preferring to listen to the voices telling us the world is going to hell. But once we recognize our negativity bias, the rational brain can overcome the power of bad when it is harmful and employ that power when it is beneficial. In fact, bad breaks and bad feelings creates the, mo the most powerful incentives to become smarter and stronger. In few words, bad can be put to perfectly good use. We revel in, in praise for a much shorter time than we wallow in criticism. Regardless, write the authors, Barkan makes us stronger in the end. Though it may be difficult to negate the negativity, the authors show how not to be ruled by it. Their prescriptions have mostly to do with reframing the context of the negative, isolating the rotten apple so it doesn't contaminate the remainder of the barrel. These specific strategies have a commonsensical tone. Learn to be as creative with your praise as you are with your criticism. Protect yourself and don't expect bad apples to change on their own. As the authors, John Tierney and Baumeister show in this wide-ranging book, we can adopt proven strategies to avoid the pitfalls that doom relationships, careers, businesses, and nations. Instead of despairing and what's wrong in your life and in the world, you can see how much is going right and how to make it still better. Not everyone may agree with the author's points of view. Nonetheless, the book raises important, important questions and provides provocative answers that challenge our present perspective on the life we are living. My second book is The Boy Who Fell Too Much, How a Renowned Neuroscientist and His Son Change Our View of Autism Forever. This excellent book is an international bestseller. The story behind Henry Markram's breakthrough theory about autism and how a family's unconditional love led to a scientific paradigm shift. In Wagner's new book, Henry Markram, the neuroscientist behind the billion-dollar Blue Brain Project, 
to build a supercomputer model of the brain has set the goal of decoding all disturbances of the mind within a generation. This quest is personal for him. The driving force behind his grand admission has been his son Kai, who has autism. Raising Kai made Henry Markram question all that he thought he knew about neuroscience, and this questioning later shook the autism research world when Markram introduced his now famous theory of intense world syndrome, his groundbreaking research that would append the prevailing worldview that individuals with autism lack empathy. When Kai was first diagnosed, his father consulted studies and experts. He knew a lot about the human brain, but still felt as helpless as any parent confronted with this condition in his child. What's more, the scientific consensus that autism was a deficit of empathy didn't mesh with Mark Graham's experience of his son. He became convinced that the disorder, which has seen a sixth 157% increase in diagnosis over the past decade was fundamentally misunderstood. Bringing his world-class research to bear on the problem, he devised a radical new theory of the disorder. People like Kai don't feel too little. They feel too much. Their senses are too delicate for this world. Reviewers Virginia Johnson and John Curtis state that Wagner does an exceptional job of mixing biography with complex yet accessible neuroscience. This is an essential read for parents, educators, physicians, and specialists working with children of all ages. My third selection is Rising becoming the first Canadian woman to summit Mount Everest, a memoir by Sharon Wood. She's the owner of Adventure Dynamics, a speaking and mountain guiding business. More than 30 years after her historic ascent, the Canmore-based climber, speaker and writer, Sharon Wood, offers her first full-length account of her contribution to the 1986 Canadian Everest Expedition, an account that is affecting and personal. As part of the Canadian team, Sharon Wood became the first woman from the Americas to summit Mount Everest, and the first woman in the world to do so via the West Ridge from Tibet and without Sherpa support. But it is how she got there that is truly compelling. In rising, the personal motivation that drove Wood to reach further and further heights are detailed through the years leading up to the career-defining climb. Often, the only woman on expeditions, Wood was an outlier in a predominantly male bastion of high-altitude alpine climbing. Against the backdrop of the stunning Himalayan mountains in the days before Everest became as commercialized as it is today, 
Wood explores the camaraderie and rivalry, the relatable challenges of falling in and out of love, and how she kept her drive to persevere. Subsequently, she recounts how she struggled with unexpected acclaim and expectations following her ascent of Everest, but ultimately found fulfillment and her place in the world. As she tells her story today, her perspective is steeped in six decades of life experience, rich with adrenaline, change, reflection, and humility. It is a tale that still feels poignantly relevant, a testament to the strength of the human spirit to overcome all obstacles, whether mountain peaks, social expectations, or self-imposed barriers. Rising is sure to become a classic in the genre of climbing memoirs. By making the impossible possible, on a difficult and rarely repeated route up the world's highest mountain, Sharon Woods Everest's journey should inspire women and climbers the world over, challenging us to be strong, steely-eyed, and present in each moment and to persevere. In summary, this is a story of determination in which the objective is the end and the end the objective. My fourth and last book for today is Family Papers, a Sephardic journey through the 20th century by Sarah Abrevaya Stein. Sarah Brevaya Stein is the author or editor of many books, the recipient of the Sami Rohr Prize for Jewish Literature, two national endowment for the Humanities Fellowships, a Guggenheim Fellowship, and the National Jewish Books Awards, Stein lives with her family in Santa Monica, California. This book has been named one of the best books of 2019 by The Economist and a New York Times book review editor's choice and is a National Jewish Book Award finalist. Prominent historian of the Sephardic community, Stein shares the true story of a Sephardic Jewish family preserved in thousands of letters and other documents. For centuries, the bustling port city of Salonica was home to the sprawling Levy family. At that time, Jews, primarily Sephardim, who were expelled from Spain and Portugal, constituted approximately 50% of the population of the great poor city. They participated in every level of economic, social, and cultural life there. As leading publishers and editors, the Levy, the Levy family helped chronicle modernity as it was experienced by Sephardic Jews across the Ottoman Empire. The wars of the 20th century, however, redrew the borders around them, in the process transforming the Levies from Ottomans to Greeks. Family members soon moved across boundaries and hemispheres, stretching the familial diaspora from Greece to Western Europe, Israel, Brazil, and India. In time, 
the Holocaust nearly eviscerated the clan, eradicating whole branches of the family tree. Dr. Stein, the author, meticulously traces the family's physical and psychological journeys throughout the 20th century via letters, diaries, and other documents saved by various family members throughout the world. She also located and interviewed the few surviving family members. In family papers, the author uses the family's correspondence to tell the story of their journey across the arc of a century and the breadth of the globe. They wrote to share grief and to reveal secrets, to propose marriage and to plan for divorce, to maintain connection. They wrote because they were family, and years later, Stein discovers, what remains solid is the fragile tissue that once held them together. Neither blood nor belief, but papers. The author begins her study with a memoir written by the founder of the dynasty, Saadi. Ninety-five pages written in a simple notebook passed through four generations of the family. Dr. Stein discovered other family documents written in eight languages in South Africa, England, Canada, France, Greece, Germany, Hungary, Israel, Portugal, Italy, and the United States. They are, Stein says, spread across nine countries and three continents. The single largest collection, the papers of Leon Levy, is kept by his four grandchildren in a private vault in Rio de Janeiro. It consists of nearly 5,000 handwritten and typed letters, telegrams, photographs, legal and medical documents, and miscellaneous. By far the largest private archive I have encountered as a professional historian and near obsessive document hunter, she says. The Levy cousins, Stein writes, had lived under Ottoman, Greek, German, French, Spanish, Portuguese, British, Indian, and Brazilian rule. They had witnessed the 1917 fire in Salonica, the Balkan Wars, the First and Second World Wars, and they had emigrated in multiple directions, some more than once. According to a critic, Reading family papers is an enthralling experience, not only for its emotional impact, but also for its revelations in a chapter of Jewish history about which little is written. Stan uses the Levy's letters to tell not only their history, but the history of Sephardic Jews in the 20th century. Well, this is all for today's program. And I hope that you get to read one of these books. Thank you for your attention, and I wish you a happy reading. Hi, this is Wakun Chen, editor of La Chena Musicale magazine and co-founder of the Corona Serenades. The coronavirus has forced us all into social isolation. La Chena Musicale is mobilizing an international movement to deliver the joy of music with the Corona Serenades. We would like to thank the Kosingluk Public Library for supporting this initiative and to all in Kosingluk, 
be well, and stay safe. You can find out more by visiting coronaserenades.com. That is today's episode of the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service. If you're listening at 2 p.m. on our phone line, we have another special item for you. Have a great day.